As we start, I do want you to know once again that uh, if there's something that you didn't quite understand or you have a question, uh, it is okay to interrupt. I know that I can start talking and I'll start going like a locomotive and there's no break. And so it's okay. Just raise your hand or shout. Um, and uh, I'll be more than glad to uh, stop and try and answer if you do have a question or whatever the, the deal is. So, uh, I want, so basically what we're going to be going through is kind of a, I, it, it, it is a, uh, in the arena of apologetics, what it is specifically is there is a, I'm trying to, just, I'm trying to figure out how to describe this. Um, there are many different kinds of attacks on Christianity. And there is uh, some of the strongest attacks, or maybe in a sense some of the most successful attacks, come from individuals that either claim that they were Christians at one time, or they were educated in a Christian college and even in a seminary. So they're very familiar with what I would call the Christian language, theology, uh, and they, uh, for whatever the reason, uh, I guess it's just because I, I use the word pernicious. It's a word that's used of the devil. Uh, if you, someone who acts perniciously, the main idea with that is that you want to pull others down. There's no reason. It's just a corrupt. Uh, and there are those who, for whatever the reason, want, I think want to corrupt um, uh, people who are especially young in their faith. Uh, they're not the only ones that are affected. So I want to, I want to deal with those types of things because... If you ever come across it, or, you, or maybe you know someone who comes across the kind of arguments that are used, on the surface, it can sound like it's solid. It can sound like it's logical. It, it sounds like um, maybe there's stuff you've never heard before, and it can be, in a sense, stunning. And some people can begin to waver in their faith. Uh, and um, so this is to, to help prevent that. Um, and help you become more familiar with, I guess I would say, the kind of tactics uh, that people use. It's pretty much, I think, the same. Um, and you'll see that as we go along. So, obviously, when it comes to our faith as Christians, we know that we are called to be completely devoted to Christ, to be completely devoted to the Word of God. Um, there are uh, certain exclusive truths um, that we have and we do live in a culture that's becoming more and more very intolerant of those. Uh, simply put, we believe Christ is the only way of salvation. That is an exclusive truth. That means that there is no other way. So no matter what religion or philosophy proposes another way, they're wrong. People don't like that. They hate that. Um, and so... Uh, they want to find ways to attack Christianity, to destroy the foundation, to take away maybe the confidence that we have. We live in a time, and this is not unusual to a degree, but we live in a time where sometimes individuals, maybe, maybe more often now it seems, that when people come and commit themselves to Christ, there's, there's not always an awareness that what we believe in a sense is really true. Now, it's not that they think that it's not really true. 
They just haven't thought about it that way. They think, oh, well, it's just a matter of faith. And so I have faith. And they think then that their faith, in a sense, is enough. So what we want to make sure that we, that we help everyone to understand is, yes, we uh, believe what we believe by faith. But the faith we have in the Bible, the faith that we have in the claims that Christianity makes, we are not putting our faith in something that is unsupported by reason or by logic or by evidence. It's out there. And so our faith should not be easily uprooted. But a lot of people just are unaware of some of those kinds of things. So what takes place then is when people try to undermine that, uh, and, the, and there's certain individuals I'm thinking of in particular, what they would try to do is they try to undermine uh, that foundation and make it appear as if we've been given a false foundation or a faulty foundation or that there is no foundation and that they are the intellectual one. They are the ones who are being honest and we would call that being intellectually honest, willing to face whether they say there's contradictions or what have you. And so they're taking the, the better way. And so it just kind of, uh, it can destroy the faith. Uh, this happens a great deal on college campuses a lot of uh, kids who are church-going kids, maybe even uh, many of them are Christians, uh, they go to a university, even some Christian schools, and within a year, uh, they are no longer really interested in the Christian faith. Now, I do believe that for many of them, they actually all had already started to drift from the faith before they ever got to college. But nonetheless, what happens at college normally in the first year is kind of the last straw. And after that, there's just no interest. And they're they end up making a lot, obviously a lot of bad decisions after that, that it will affect their life for the future. So the first thing I want us to talk about or think about is when it comes to faith, we need to understand what our society thinks about the word faith. What do they think about faith? What is faith to them? Uh, and so the main misconception is that faith has nothing or very little to do with reason or logic. Right now, we're not saying that faith is only logic. We're not saying that. We're not saying that um, you can necessarily even reason someone into the faith, all right? But faith, the Bible does say that faith is the, is the substance. Uh, uh, you know, we have faith in, in, in those things that are unseen, but there's a substance that is there. It's not kind of floating on air, and there's no reason why we believe, okay? We believe what's in the Bible uh, because the Bible is true, and there's reasons why we think the Bible is true. In fact, I would say there's reasons why we know the Bible is true. That's why often many of the main attacks against Christianity uh, are against the Bible, trying to find a way to undermine the Bible. Um, and again, as Christians, we have, we've put a target on ourselves, which isn't a bad thing. We've put a target on ourselves because Christians will say things like, if you can show me one mistake in the Bible, I'll throw my faith away. Now, I don't, I, don't, I actually don't think that's foolish, but what happens is the world, they can't believe that. So, boy, they're thinking, hey, just got to find one thing wrong. Then all the Christians are destroyed. Of course, that hasn't happened yet, but they're going to work on it. So, again, for them, or for the world in general, and maybe for a lot of Christians, uh, they don't realize that their faith does have a lot to do with reason and logic. So, what we need to realize is faith, then, is, is seen as, as not as something that you seek to provide evidence for or view rationally. You're just supposed to accept it. Uh, there was a time in many churches 
uh, and maybe some churches are still this way. I, I don't think very many are like this now. But it used to be that if, if a person was to raise their hand in Sunday school and ask a question that sounded difficult, people in the class would get mad. What are you doing? You're a troublemaker. You know, that kind of thing. Okay, we, we just shouldn't do that. Um, we, sh we, we want people to ask questions. Even if, even if the question is something we don't know the answer to, we can find the answer. We should not be upset if the person is asking a question where it's obvious that they're skeptical. That's okay. We, you know, God, is not, God never says to someone, look, just ignore your questions and just believe. Okay, not, God does not say that. Right? Uh, again, there's a, a famous passage in the Bible um, where God does say, let us sit down and reason together. There, there's that idea that's there. Um, and so we want to make sure that we don't view people uh, who have questions that arise from skepticism as being evil. And there are times that some individuals will be a troublemaker and they're just asking questions because they want to stir things up. But that can be to our advantage. Because even though they're not going to be persuaded, as you then explain the answer to everybody else, their faith is improved. This happened in the jail all the time. There'd be some clown in there that was just like, you know, he hated Christians, he hated me, he hated the Bible. And so they would say, well, if that's true, what about this? I go, man, that is so awesome. And they would just dive into it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, because uh, now everybody wants to hear, you know, they go, oh, yeah, well, what about that, chaplain? I said, there's an answer. And we just get into it. It's great. And uh, one time there was a guy that he did this day after day. And I could tell he was getting frustrated because what he wanted to accomplish wasn't being accomplished. And so by the end of the week, I went up to him afterwards. I said, listen, I just want to thank you. I said, you have helped me so much with this class. I said, man, you are bringing up questions that I've just, I forgot to even bring up. And you have made it so interesting for the guys here because of these objections that you raise. I said, it's really cool. So I just want to thank you. <laughs> he just kind of, you know, kind of mumbled. But anyway, uh, but I was grateful. All right, so. Uh, again, uh, what, what people think is that if uh, that um, faith then is not grounded in reason, logic, or historical realities, that it's just a personal preference. And there are many people who do think that, and there's even Christians who think that, that it's just a personal preference. Um, and that is untrue. It is more than that. Uh, and obviously, you've heard me and maybe many others talk about this. We do not hold to a concept of blind faith. Our faith in the Lord is not blind. Yes, ma'am. I just wanted to mention that um, for us to be able to reason and ask questions about the Bible and mm -hmm. what God means by it, because God doesn't look at us as, as um, stupid, as Correct. an idiot. Yeah. He, he made us intelligent beings. So I, I agree. that sometimes because I don't always have all the answers. Sure. But we can find the answers. Right. Because they're there. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, well, well, the thing is, is that God has created us um, with an inquisitive mind. And God is himself, he is logic, and he's rational, he's created a rational world. You know, when we, you know, when we talk about like the law of gravity, you know, this, it's not like it's a law that's outside of God, but that's how we describe it. But the idea is, is that we, there's a consistency in the universe in creation that we can come up with this with this, what we would call a law, that is always true. Well, that's because God created the world, and it is that way. Imagine if, you know, 
Now, I know that this may sound weird to you, but it's not weird to me. But many of you know that I'm just not a big fan of flying. I will get on an airplane, but I'm just I'm not happy. Um, but one of the things I do think about is I know that as men discovered how it is that we can make planes fly, that is based on the consistent way that God has created the world and the world functions. And so those laws are always in place. Always. They're, they're not going to fail. So that's why planes don't just fall out of the sky. Because they, they could if the laws were inconsistent. I mean, I would never go up on a plane if that was how it was. All right? So I, but I, so I remind myself, <laughs> even though man is flawed, you know, they have been flying for a long time. So, but, but there's a consistency that's there. And so as a result of that, this is God's universe. It used to be that's how it was with science. Uh, many, many scientists in the beginning, uh, when science kind of became a thing, most of them were all Christians. And their view of things was, I want to discover what God has put in place to figure out how this, all this works. And they've been amazed for the years as to the intricacies of how the world works. Uh, and of course, the why. Like if you, ask, if you begin to ask the why question, so why does it do this? Why is it doing that? Why, why all these things? There's millions of things that all kind of have to exist at once for life to exist on this planet. You know, that's why, again, evolution becomes kind of a, a, really, a really weird thing um, to, to believe in. It does, require, it does require a lot of faith to believe in it because there's a million questions they cannot answer. And it's not that the answer is just, oh, God. It's more than that. But, but we can explain the laws that are in place with mathematical precision because God has not only created us to be able to understand those things but to discover those things which are really there and so uh, again that's why we are not asking anyone and no believer has blind faith so the Bible never asks for blind faith the Bible calls for reasoned faith uh, the faith that we have is is to be an honest faith we should be honest about questions we should be honest about personal doubts. We should always look for real answers. You'll hear me sometimes use a phrase. Uh, the phrase is, is that it's important for people to be intellectually honest or intellectually consistent. So what that means is, so when someone says, I don't believe there's any evidence for God, okay, they have a right to believe that. So if that is a true statement, if they're going to be intellectually honest, then if I'm going to present to them evidence that God exists, they would have to look at it and think about it. If they don't want to even consider it, then we would say they're being intellectually dishonest. Right? It doesn't mean they're lying. It's just that whatever reason they've thrown out, it's, it's not that they don't believe it. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But it's just now just a flimsy excuse because they don't want to think about it. So, that's, so there's intellectual dishonesty there. There's a lot of that that goes on. And sometimes Christians do the same thing. So we want to make sure that we're not doing that um, as individuals. And one of the great things about this is even though there's, there's an enormous amount of logic and reason in our faith, you don't have to have an, a high IQ to understand it. Um, if you ever pay close attention to children, as children grow, you will notice that all children normally and automatically think logically. They all do it. It's just normal. You tell a kid anything, and as they get older, they're thinking about it. And if, let's say, if you've said something different, they spot the inconsistency immediately. If you say, you know, there's no such thing as whatever, 
and they've seen it, they're, okay, they're thinking, logically, you're not telling the truth. You know, we may tell them that the stuffed elephant on their bed is real, but as they get older, they learn it's not real. And then what do they sometimes say? You say, oh, well, your elephant's going to watch over you. And they go, it's not alive, Dad. Well, how did they come up with that? They, as they learn, they think. And so they're thinking logically. And they, can, they figure things out. And sometimes they become little lawyers. I told uh, when we were when we were raising our kids, you know, when they all were first born in Hawaii, it's very, very expensive to live there. So, you know, we, everything's on a budget, a very tight budget. So I told the kids that... Uh, you know, only one glass of juice a day. It's very important because if you don't do that with four kids, they will go through two gallons a day, and that's expensive. So I said, one glass of juice a day. And they said, okay. And so on this particular Saturday, the house is extremely quiet. Three kids are outside playing. One kid's in the kitchen. He's quiet. And I walk in there, and he's standing on the counter. And he'd open the cabinets, and he'd reach to the very, very top, and he pulled out a glass. It's a glass that will hold 48 ounces of liquid. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, you said only one glass of juice. I go, yeah, I did. He goes, I want this glass. <laughs> and I said, not a problem. Daddy will pour. And so I put it down, got him down, got a regular glass, filled it up, poured it in there, handed it to him, and he just went, <laughs> He was thinking. I mean, he was, you know, he figured it out. Only one glass a day? Oh, I know. There's a huge glass right up there. I can have all I want. So anyway, so, uh, so that's just the normal way that we operate. That's how God has created us. Uh, you have to be actually, in a sense, trained um, to, I guess you would say, quiet your mind to begin to believe things that are contradictory to each other. Um, and so, again, what we're talking about is not something that only individuals who have a super high IQ or a degree in philosophy can follow because that's not true. So there are individuals who are clever. Again, they are intellectually dishonest. Uh, there's a large number of them. One of them, his name is Bart Ehrman. I've talked about him before. Uh, he was educated at Wheaton College and he went to Moody Bible College. Those are, at least when, when he went to Wheaton, it was a really solid school. It's Anyway, uh, Moody's a solid school. I don't know what happened in his life, but he's turned against Christianity. And it seems that his mission in life is to undermine the faith of believers. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, he goes around and he gives lectures. Uh, and we're, we're gonna, I'm going to use him as an example uh, over the next several weeks to kind of show you the tactics that he's using uh, that, again, are very, very successful until you realize what he's doing. And you realize, yeah, he's, that's actually not very clever at all. In fact, it's, it's dishonest. But he is clever. What he says is that logic and evidence is all that counts. And he, and he says that when he's talking about the Bible and God and Christianity. He says, so basically, the way we should be as human beings is, is we want to follow logic, we want to look at the evidence, and that the best arguments win. And what he's going to present is that the best arguments show that Christianity is just basically full of holes and you shouldn't believe it. But I will show you that None of that's true. He does then suggest that anyone who disagrees with him is biased uh, and that those who agree with him are the only ones who are looking at the evidence objectively, which I guess that's norm. Isn't that yeah, absolutely. I mean, I tell people that. I said, I think I believe the right way. If you don't believe the way I believe, you're wrong. 
<laughs> but I'm willing to say, hey, if you have a good argument, I'm willing to look at it. You know, that kind of thing. So when it comes to this, though, we have to make sure we, we recognize this. And, and so I don't want this to throw you off, but no one can prove the Bible true with 100% certainty. Okay, that doesn't exist. Right? It's very, there's very few things in the universe that we can know with 100% certainty. Um, and especially when you're dealing with any book that, that has history in it, I mean, we can be, we can be highly certain to a, to a degree, a very high degree, but this idea of 100% certainty, um, the 100% is just, is kind of can throw people off. Um, that doesn't mean that we, at any moment, accept anything that's false. All right? There are times that we figure out what is true. For example, this may be a bad example, but this, this first thing that pops in my mind. You know, it is rare, but it does happen, that an individual can be found guilty of murder and they never find the body. Right? And there's all of the evidence is circumstantial because they don't have a body. But individuals have been found, and rightly so, guilty of murder because rationally and logically speaking, it could not be anybody else. In fact, I'm, I did read a case where once this one guy that all the evidence clearly pointed to him and his defense was that the person who killed his wife was an alien and that's why there was no evidence, which if aliens existed would make sense. So um, the, the other lawyers said, well, I guess if he can prove and give us evidence that aliens exist, we'll be okay. We can accept that theory. Of course, he doesn't have any of that. Um, I once knew a guy who, because uh, I, I used to talk to him every day in the jail, uh, as far as I was concerned, I didn't even go to the trial. He was guilty of killing his mother. Uh, I don't know why he did that. He didn't have to do that. He killed his mother. Um, he's, I think he's part sociopath, um, among other things. But they never found her body. Never found a trace. There is no blood in the house. Just nothing. But she's gone. No one knows where she is. Um, and uh, he, was, he ended up being found guilty, found guilty of murder and is doing life. Um, in prison. Yes? When somebody was teaching something false in the church, mm -hmm. it's referenced in uh, Acts about the Koreans. Mm -hmm. You search the scriptures and you, mm -hmm. um, you right. discuss these things. To make Absolutely. Sure. Have you yeah. ever, I don't know if you could, I just walked down. No, that's fine. Uh, yeah, we are to do that. Um, and that used to be the norm, in a sense, uh, in a much more active way in churches. It still, I think it still happens, because people obviously talk about, I guess, the sermon, and if the pastor just says something that's kind of off, people are like, did you hear what the pastor, did, did he say that? Did, do you think he said that on purpose? Or, you know, like we do small things, like, you know, I heard my, I heard my dad do this once. He was preaching, and he, he, uh, was, he was dogmatic that when Moses built the ark, you know, he brought in two of every kind, and he kept referring to Moses. And I know, my, I know my dad knows it was Noah, not Moses. Um, but, you know, he, he said that. And then one time, you know, my dad was always pretty strong. You know, I am too. But, you know, that a, that a believer should never date an unbeliever. And most assuredly, a believer should never marry a non-believer. Right? It, not only is it sin, there's a bunch of problems with that. And so he was preaching one day and he said, And, by the way, a, a believer should never marry another believer. <laughs> and I just, so I told my dad that later that he said that, and he got mad at me. Why didn't you correct me? <laughs> you want me to stand up and say, Dad, you said it wrong? He goes, 
Yes! <laughs> because to him, the most important thing was to get the truth out. He didn't care. I go, okay. Of course, he never made that again. I, nothing out, because I go, oh, I, I can't wait. But, you know, <laughs> opportunity was lost. Um, so again, um, we do need to remember that there are individuals who might be called biblical scholars. They study the Bible because they love history. They love ancient history. Maybe they're uh, reacting against their upbringing, but they don't believe the Bible. Um, and you can see them, and you can hear them. Uh, you watch the Learning Channel or History Channel. When they have biblical scholars on, that does not always mean they're believers. In fact, most of the time they're not. And, but they know the history. They know some stuff. But they are dead wrong. On, and you, sometimes you can pick it out pretty easily. You can just tell where their bias is. Um, that they may still have the history right, but then what they're concluding from that history or what they're saying we learned from that history then is, is, is problematic. Um, sometimes they're proven wrong, thank, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, I think I mentioned, I've mentioned, I know I've mentioned this before, but I remember um, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, uh, what, there's many different arguments people try to use to, to, to discount the truthfulness of the Bible. And one of the strong ones used to be that the Bible talks about the Canaanites who live in the land of Canaan. And there was no evidence of a Canaanite civilization anywhere. And so we know that the Bible is flawed. And that was always kind of put out there. It was one of the number one arguments people would say, or biblical historians would say when they would come across that. Well, somewhere in the early 2000s, they began to find evidence of the Canaanite civilization. They now have so much evidence of the Canaanite civilization that if you get out your credit card, you can go to historychannel.org and you can buy a two and a half hour documentary just on the Canaanite civilization. So that's no longer an argument against the truthfulness of the Bible because they now they've finally uncovered and it was a massive civilization. And not only were they surprised by that, but they were surprised by how dominant it was and how influential it was. So again, the Bible was proved to be true all along, um, and that's not unusual. So the first thing we're going to begin to look at, we will not finish all of it tonight, uh, but this is the number one issue that is raised by individuals who want to find a way to uh, discredit Christianity. And that is this. There's a lot of ways to ask this question. I'll ask it one way now, but I'll mention it in different ways along the way, and that is this. Is God immoral because he allows suffering? It's what we call the question of evil. The, the idea is if there is a good God, and if this good God is omnipresent, or mean uh, omniscient, he knows everything, and he's omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful, and he allows evil, then he must be evil. If he's not evil, then he's not good, or he's not all-powerful. And they think they got you. It's the most often uh, brought up thing, almost every debate that's out there. If you were just to go online right now uh, and just kind of bring that, you would come across literally hundreds of websites by both uh, atheists and Christians who are addressing that issue. Uh, I mean, literally hundreds. It may even be in the thousands. I've never tried to count. Uh, but, you know, many, many pastors have preached on it. Many academics have talked about it. There's been a lot of books written on it. I mean, it's just been beat to death, so to speak. And it's still used to this day. So there's four main claims 
in line with this that maybe a non-believer will make. Number one, they will say that it is a contradiction to say that God is sovereign and God is good in view of all the evil in the world. Number two, they will say the Bible contains many, uh, many different answers to the problem of why there is suffering in the world, and many of these answers contradict one another. And so they'll say that, again, so they may say, oh yeah, well, we know there's answers in the Bible, but they contradict each other, so they can't be correct. Um, some will say that the Bible's explanation for suffering and evil are just not satisfying, <coughs> meaning they don't like it, so it doesn't really, it's not satisfying to us, um, so the, the answers are lame. And then the fourth thing is, is the God of the Bible and then is just simply be, he is either immoral or he doesn't exist. And so that's kind of, that's kind of what all this is built on. Um, and again, because this can be, if you've not ever thought about this question, it can, it can stump you. Yes. Either he is immoral or he doesn't exist. Or that he can't exist, something like that. Is that not in your notes? I don't remember what's in the notes. You know, I make the notes up and then I forget what I put down here. Um, Oh, yeah, that's right. Four claims, so you guys start writing. So. <laughs> How was that? I, well, I, yeah, I thought I was going slow. But anyway, okay. So, uh, so the approach that some people uh, have to this, they'll say something like this. They'll say, I do not believe that there is a God who is intent on roasting innocent children and others in hell because they didn't happen to accept a certain religious creed. What they mean by that is, you know, we say that if you want to be saved from hell, you have to believe what? You have to believe in Christ, that Christ came to the earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he died for sin, uh, and that he, was then, that he, and he did die, that he was buried, and he rose again the third day. If you believe that, that Christ paid the penalty for your sin, you're saved. So that's a, that would be a creed. And so they're saying, what they're saying is, is I just don't believe that there's a God who's intent on roasting children, innocent children, and others in hell because they didn't happen to accept a certain religious creed. Um, and uh, you can tell that's an emotionally charged statement. You know, they, they use the term roasting innocent children on purpose. But anyway, that's to get your blood boiling. Uh, it's also to get people on their side. You know, because you, you can see a crowd of people. Yeah, why does God want to roast innocent children? You know, the Bible doesn't say that, but they just like, you know, most people haven't read the Bible. And they go, you know, they can't, I can't believe that's in there. Well, it's because it's not, but anyway, um, that's what happens. But then they'll say this, sometimes they'll say this, but we should work hard to make our world the most pleasing place it can be for others. What we have uh, here in the here and now is all that there is. So we need, we need to live a life to the fullest and help others, as well as to enjoy the fruits of the land. Um, and that actually comes out of one of uh, Bart Ehrman's book, books that he's written on uh, this topic. Um, yeah, the book he wrote is called God's Problem, How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question, Which is Why We Suffer. Now here's, just so you know, here's the reason why he says, but we should work hard to make our world the most pleasing place. Because that is, when you begin to discuss the question of evil and God and all that philosophically, what is often raised by Christians is, well, if what you're saying is true, then you've taken away all hope for happiness because we still have what? Suffering in the world. And now you're saying there's not even an answer because there's no God. So why even bother to try? 
And, that, and many believe that philosophically, it always leads to a form of what they, what they call nihilism, that there's no purpose, and so it doesn't really matter. So what he throws in there is, oh, but we should try to do this. We and he kind of goes through that. And we'll look at that in a minute. But that's why he throws that in there. That's to kind of offset uh, some things that people may say. Say that again? What if you're wrong? Well, that's also another approach that people use. Uh, you know, well, what if you're wrong? You know, what do you like? You know, it's, that's called, I'm trying to remember, I think it was, uh, oh, what's his name? He was a mathematician from like thousands of years ago, um, Blaise Pascal. So Blaise Pascal, he came up with, with a, uh, a, a phrase which is, which is called, um, I'm not remembering, but the idea is, is that uh, he would say, uh, if, if, you're, if, if, if you're right and I'm wrong with what I believe, then neither one of us loses anything. But if I'm right in what I believe, you lose everything. And so that's kind of the, it doesn't really solve anything, but it's one of the things that will make, may, might make an individual think. Yeah. Um, and just kind of, again, reveals that uh, there's, there's a problem there. The issue's not been solved, kind of a thing. So when someone says the kinds of things he says, again, it's good to ask why. Like, so then why should we help people? What would be the reason? Who decided we should do that, like try to make a good world and be that way? Why should we do that? Who decides even what a moral code would be? Who decides what is right, what is wrong? All those questions would still have to be answered. Who decides that? Um, and, those, and that's the real thing. I, one time I, uh, I did a debate at Armstrong. Uh, it was, uh, there was a summer uh, class. There were four, I guess it was four psychology classes that were being taught uh, at Armstrong this one summer. And um, someone from our church was in one of the classes. That's how I got roped into this. Uh, and so they wanted a debate between me and there was, I guess the guy was one of the leading homosexual advocates um, in the city. And so we were going to debate, I guess, homosexuality. I can't remember what all the parameters were, but that's kind of what the deal was. And so uh, on that day, all the classes got together. And um, when we did that, uh, I had to go first, and so I was stating my position and in raising questions that I, was, that I was assuming he couldn't answer, but what I was doing was trying to paint him in a corner, so I would go ahead and answer some of those questions as to what I thought he would say, so he couldn't say them. Um, and so one of those was, uh, I thought he might bring up that it would be a good thing uh, to, instead of having the laws that we have, but just let the states divide, decide, let the states vote on whether or not they want to accept homosexuality. Um, and so I assumed that he, would, that he would want to bring that up. And so I said, oh, and by the way, it was in my closing statement, uh, when I did the opening thing, I said, um, you might be thinking that it'd be a good idea to let people vote. I says, I don't think you want to do that. I said, because they just had a law that was up for vote in Mississippi. 85% of the vote was to outlaw homosexuality. I said, so if you want to go there, you can, but it's not going to go the way you think it's going to go. I said, there are many, many states where not only will it not be supported, it will be outlawed. And we'll go back to what it was like in the 70s when it was outlawed. So you, and so I told him, I said, so you need to come up with a better suggestion than that. I did feel kind of bad for him because I could tell he'd been drinking already. And we were, we were debating at 12 noon. I could smell the beer, but anyway. And so he, 
that was this first thing on his list because I could kind of see his notes, you know, which was, you know, let the people decide. <laughs> and so he went, I would have to think about that. <laughs> it was good. So I, I was great. I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, but that was, again, the idea is, is that uh, someone has to make these decisions. If this is an issue that has to be resolved, what standard do you use? Who makes the rules? Why do they get to make the rules? Why should we follow the rules? You know, all that kind of stuff is out there. And the goal of all that is to show that if, if there is no authority, it's always going to lead to chaos. You're going to have a problem. And so it, we, it's not one of those things that you just can't just leave it. It has to be addressed and resolved. So again, remember that if there is no God, and we live in, in what we would call a strictly material universe, Violence and suffering are a part of the natural world, uh, but now there's no inherent morality attached to them as far as being good or bad or evil. So violence could not be evil uh, because technically there's no evil and no good. Uh, it would just simply be part of the evolutionary process. Now, there will be some individuals who will actually agree with that. They'll say, well, yeah, that's, that's all you're left with. But, and, I, and I think that they say that because they know that it's not that way. Because if it was that way, and I have a hunting knife, I could say, well, I don't like you. I don't think you should live. Why should I not kill him? What would be the reason? Because if he says, well, it's wrong, says who? Right? right? It ends up being might makes right. That's what, you know, people are mad at Putin today because he seems to be living by this archaic thing, might makes right. Most people would say they disagree with that. But they don't know why. Who said it, it doesn't? You know, m much of the world still has adopted the moral code that comes from the Bible. Now, I know I've mentioned this to you before, but there's a great book you could read. Uh, it's, it, I guess it would be an apologetic book. It's written by a guy from India, and it's called The Book That Made Your World. It's just very different, but it's very, very interesting. Uh, because the, the book is written from the perspective of a man who was raised and lived as an atheist in a Hindu country. Right? So he's, he's not, he doesn't have the normal Western kind of view of things. Uh, but he uses logic, he uses reason, and throughout the book, it kind of walks you through what his thinking was, really on his road to, be, to becoming a Christian. There's great, original, unique stories in, in, the, in the book. It's just a fabulous book. Um, and so a lot of things that we're talking about kind of come to life uh, in, in what he's written because you can kind of see it played out before you. And so the logical inconsistencies that one may hold to or that may exist in certain countries begins to kind of take shape uh, and you can see it. So I would highly recommend that book. I, you can get it in paperback now. It's called The Book That Made Your World. Uh, the guy that's the author is Vishal, Vishal Magwaldi, and I can't spell that. Uh, but I bet you if you saw that name, you'd recognize it. <laughs> anyway, yes, Howard. If, um, back when you were talking about rules and the mm -hmm. and all, mm -hmm. but I mean, that happened before Noah, when man did oh, sure. it because he saw it, yeah. came angry and destroyed the Absolutely, world, so, yeah. You know, There's several examples of that in the Bible, because even later on, before, the, before Israel began to have a king, when you're reading in Judges, it says a man began to do whatever was right in his own eyes. And what, it, what ends up happening is it ends up being very evil. Um, you know, we have to, it, it's difficult for people to imagine a world that has not been influenced by Christianity. 
But when you read about worlds or civilizations that were not influenced by Christianity, you have to go way back. What you find is an enormous amount of bloodshed. I mean, it is, it, it, the brutality is insane. Back when the, I can't remember, I think it was the Aztecs, not the Incas. But the Aztecs, uh, toward the end of their civilization, what was happening is, is there, they were experiencing, there was a, a major weather shift in the world. And as a result of that, their way of life was greatly threatened. They were no longer able to grow the crops they were able to grow. I mean, a lot of bad things were happening uh, because of how the climate was changing. Climate change is another word for weather. It happens. And so um, they began to sacrifice human beings. And the way they, what they would do in the beginning is they would sacrifice slaves. Well, you run out of slaves to sacrifice after a while. And so you start sacrificing other people. In, and they even were sacrificing their, uh, you know, their own children. And we're talking like hundreds a day where they lay them on the altar and, and while they're alive, dig their heart out. Uh, and they were doing that uh, in some fashion to kind of either appease their gods that they thought was making all this happen. And they, they, they slaughtered just tens of thousands of people by, I mean, that takes a lot of work to do that by hand and a knife. I mean, just so you know, that's, that's a, it's hard to imagine that going on. And everybody it basically being in agreement. Everyone's watching this take place. Uh, now, that's not unique in the sense of that kind of thing taking place uh, because many, many ancient civilizations were extremely barbaric. And what is also interesting is that in many of them, when they changed, you know, if they didn't kill themselves off, when they changed, it was normally when they came in contact with Westerners. But it wasn't just Westerners. It was Westerners who were what? Had been influenced by the Bible, whether they were Christians or not. They had a moral standard, moral code that they got from the Bible. And they introduced, introduced that uh, in these places. Every place has some kind of moral code. We may not agree with it. Um, there's a book called Peace Child. Uh, and uh, it's a story uh, about um, a tribe in New Guinea or Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guinea or something like that. I'm, I'm not sure which, which exactly, but it's in that area. But basically, when the missionaries came in and learned the language, you know, they're trying to, to learn the culture of the people. And what became very difficult for them is when they finally got to the point where they, they felt comfortable enough with the language, they told the story of Jesus, who he was, why he came, how he ended up dying. And when, when they explained about Judas betraying Jesus, they cheered. Because in their culture, Judas is the hero. Because in their culture, what these missionaries learned was that for these people, the greatest thing in the world is to be able to betray someone where they don't see it coming. And what gives them the greatest happiness would be the look on the person's face when they realize you betrayed them. I mean, they live for that. And they talk, and they had a story they would tell. One of the stories was is there was another group that they were warring with, and this one group realized they weren't going to do so well. So they, they, they began to send over an envoy of individuals to kind of make for peace. And so this other tribe received them and kind of befriended them to where they, they became much more trusting. And so they agreed they were going to have a big feast. And at this feast, they were going to come together and they were going to work out this agreement. And so this envoy comes back. There's six, seven, eight of them, whatever. And so they come over and they have this elaborate feast and everyone's just having a great time. And in, in the middle of this feast, uh, the one chief of the, of, of the tribe that was being visited, he stood up 
and began to give this little speech and pulled out this whatever homemade knife he had and told the guy basically that uh, this is the day of your death and the guy was stunned and they had a look of shock and the, the, the people could not have been happier. I mean, it just, it was, to them, it's better than Christmas. And when the guy slashed his throat and the others in terror began to ran, that made, so they ended up killing everybody. And so when they would retell the story, the highlight of the story was to try to find a way to explain and express the expression on the ones who at that moment realized they were being betrayed. And that's the group that thinks Judas is the hero. And now you've got to figure out how do I get them to realize that Judas isn't the hero? That's the kind of morality that they had. They, I mean, they literally believed that. They, they didn't. There was no, no reason for them to think that was wrong. Missionaries eventually figured it out, thank goodness. That's why the book is called Peace Child. You should read it. It's a great read. Um, it's only 270 pages or so, and you'll read it in two days. Um, I'm, you can just get a, get a used copy for a couple bucks off Amazon. But it's really good. Peace Child. <laughs> All right, so anyway. <laughs> what was that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm serious. It, it's, like, it's better than a novel. Uh, it's really, really good. It's they just... didn't have many surprise birthday parties. No, no, they, not that kind. Not that kind. Uh, that's for sure. But again, when it comes to those issues of if you don't have Christianity, then how do you explain who makes the rules, et cetera, et cetera? What that always ends up leading to is a form of materialism. And the idea with that is not just that we look at the materials around us, think that's all there is to life. But then as human beings, since we really don't have a soul, then we are nothing more than just chemical and electrical reactions and impulses. You know what that means? That means there's no such thing as love. Whatever you think is love is just a chemical reaction. It doesn't exist. No really such thing as hatred. It's just a chemical reaction. So you really can't be in love with somebody you're not really going to be committed to them. The main idea is, is you're probably committed, to, it's how they explain it, is you're probably committed to them because of what you can get out of the relationship. Because that's all there is. I mean, it's a, it's a very, uh, again, nihilistic way, or nihilistic, however you want to say it, way to look at the world. But again, without God, compassion for others then is now nothing. It's nothing but chemical changes in the brain. Suffering then is meaningless, and violence is meaningless. That's what it always ends up with. So individuals who are trying to uh, put down Christianity, even though they may feel successful that they're doing it, they are then obligated, I think, to say, okay, so then what then is in its place? What gives life meaning? Or why should I not punch you in the head for destroying what I believe in? What would be the reason? And the best they can come up with is because your religion says you can't do that. Yeah, but you just said my religion doesn't, it's not true. So what's the reason? So they really are stuck with that. And that's a very profound thing, um, especially if they're going to be intellectually honest, you know, with the issue. All right? So I was, I guess I'll read this to you. Um, there was a man who, who was an atheist for a real long time. He became a Christian. Uh, and he wrote this. He's an, he's an intellectual. This guy, he really is very, very smart. Um, very high IQ, and this is what he said. He said, uh, when it comes to this whole thing, he said, everything in the world really does go wrong without God. 
This is true even of the good things that God has actually given to us, such as our minds. One of the good things I've been given is a stronger than average mind. The problem is that a strong mind that refuses the call to serve God has its own way of going wrong. You see, when some people flee from God, they rob and kill. When others flee from God, they do a lot of drugs and have a lot of sex. When I fled from God, I didn't do any of those things. My way of fleeing was to become stupid. Though it always comes as a surprise to intellectuals, there are some forms of stupidity that one must be really highly intelligent and educated to commit. Paul said that the knowledge of God's law is written on our hearts. Our conscience also bear witness. That means that as long as we have minds, we can't know them. We cannot not know them. Well, I was unusually determined not to know them. Therefore, I had to destroy my mind. I resisted the temptation to believe in good with as much energy as some saints resist the temptation to neglect good. What he means by that, remember, is that when people say that um, you know, when they're trying to deal with the problem of evil and they say there's no God, if that's true, there's no evil because there's no good. Both are now lost. And so he says he became stupid because he sees good, but he's trying to convince himself, nope, there's no such thing as good. He says, for instance, I love my wife and children, but I was determined to regard this love as merely a subjective preference with no real and objective value. The reason why he worked hard at that was because he understood that he needed to be philosophically consistent. If I believe such and such, then even though I feel like I love my wife, I really can't. It has to be something else. So he's trying hard to be honest, which is great, uh, because I think that's why he probably got saved. He says this, he says, so, so think what this did to my, every, my very capacity to love them. After all, love is a commitment of the will to the true good of another person. And how can one's will be committed to the true good of another person if he denies the reality of good and denies the reality of persons and denies that his commitments are in his control? Visualize a man opening up the access panels of his mind and pulling out all the components that have, been, that have God's image stamped on them. The problem is, is they all have God's image stamped on them. So the man will never stop. No matter how much he pulls out of his brain, there's still more to pull. I was that man. And because I pulled out more and more, there was less and less that I could think about. But because there was less and less that I could think about, I thought I was becoming more and more focused. Because I believed things that filled me with dread. I thought I was smarter and braver than the people who didn't believe them. I thought I saw an emptiness at the heart of the universe that was hidden from their foolish eyes. Of course, I was the fool. And that ends up being the form of nihilism that very smart people will get to. If everything we're saying is true, that there's no God, etc., etc., what, what they end up doing is realizing that everything is, in the end, meaningless. And if everything is meaningless, that's a very dark hole. And because they don't want to admit that's a problem, uh, well, it is a problem, but they don't want to admit you know, to the believer. What they'll then say is, you see, the Christian is not willing to see the truth of that. I am. I'm willing to accept, which sounds really weird, but this is what they're doing. I'm willing to accept that everything in the world is meaningless, that it's a dark hole, nothing awaits us, this life is all there is. I'm better than you are because I can face it. I'm like, oh, 
can I buy you another beer? Because, I mean, there's just, your life is empty. There's nothing there. But so he really was believing that. And, of course, in the end, he came face to face with that and realized that, you know what? The Bible is true in every way. God exists. And he became a believer. So I will end with that. And we will then get into the specifics of God and evil and suffering. And we'll go through their claims. Remember, I said there were four of them. We'll go through them one at a time. And uh, I will... Uh, show you the answer of how to work through that and show you why uh, each of those statements are actually unfounded and untrue. Uh, and that once again, we get back to the Bible, um, that the Bible does have the answers. Uh, the Bible is written in, in an incredibly unique way. Uh, the Bible from beginning to end uh, is filled with not only the truth about God, but it is done in a way that it is logically consistent from the beginning to the end. Uh, filled with, with reason uh, as to what we believe. And uh, that's why, again, in Psalms, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Father, we thank you again for your grace, love, and kindness. Father, we ask, as we always do, Lord, that you would bless our time as we think about your word, as we think about, Father, how you've given us your word, how you have given us the answers to many of the great difficulties in life. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as we think through these things to recognize really what we have in Christ. That even when it comes to the gospel and the way of salvation, that all of that is rooted in the truth of all things. And that, that there, is, uh, there are enormous numbers of reasons for us to believe in everything the Bible says, which again includes the gospel. Father, we're so thankful that we've not been asked to believe in a fairy tale. We are so grateful, Lord, that we've not been asked to believe in something that could not be true. But, Lord, that we stand on solid ground. So, Father, we ask that our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened. We pray, Lord, we would think on these things as we, as we go home and that as we continue to dwell on them throughout the week. We look forward, Father, to being able to come together again uh, on Sunday that we may worship you, a God who is filled with answers and truth, who knows all things and can be trusted. We do thank you for all of this, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.